if you have a Bible, um, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. Now, I do have some slides. I don't know if we have the ability to play them or how I, if there's a way I would control them or... Wonderful, thank you. So, um, we'll read Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 until 27. It's just a short passage. Many of you, I'm sure, will be really familiar with this. And it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. That's the end of our reading. Let me put you on to our next slide. There we go. Okay. Um, For those of you who don't know, the image on the left is something called the Wailing Wall. I was there about a, a, a year and a half ago, and it is flooded pretty much all day long with people that face the wall, they try to get near to the wall. Um, You have to cover your head if you're a man and go on the left side. The right side is for women and children. And you go there because it is like the last, it is the sort of oldest part of of the original walls that faces where the temple would have been in Jerusalem. And down the bottom would be a mosque. I'm sure you might have seen a couple of mosques that are in Crawley, where it is flooded with Muslims that go to pray. And we might ask the very foundational question, why do they go there? And they go there because it's, it's their belief that they need to go there to pray. And the mosque over in Broadfield, I've been there a couple of times, and the mosque in Anna Green have been a few times. Um, it is literally packed out, particularly on Friday prayers. Literally, they can have up to, I think it's 1,500, 2,000 people at the Broadfield Mosque. Just everywhere, people praying. And it is quite interesting when you contrast it with Christianity, that Jews... And Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims, they go to their places of worship and often they are absolutely packed out. In fact, um, some of you may or may not know what this is. This was 
the Elim Church in Langley Green. And I remember when my brother was thinking of getting married, I think it was Sam, so forgive me if I get it wrong, but I, I remember, we remember thinking, you know, how about that as a wedding place to get married? But there was an embarrassment, right, because it's not the prettiest of buildings. It looks a bit like a bomb shelter, I think we affectionately termed it as. And um, for those of you, if you want to go past it now, it doesn't look nothing like that because it was bought by the Ahmadiyya Muslims. It now looks like that. That's quite a transformation, is it not? They threw enormous sums of money. There's a lot of mon- money in the Ahmadiyyan cr- um, community. They're uh, regarded by Muslims as a cult because of the position they put Jesus in. And inside, um, this is what it looks like from the outside, and the inside, um, the, it has had, let's just say, enormous sums of money to make it, to prettify it really, we might say. And churches, we tend not to put a lot of emphasis on the building because we, the people, are the temple of God. Which in many ways sounds like we should have many advantages in that, but I would put it to you actually... It exposes, for, uh, especially in the West, how poor Christianity has really become. This has been some of the challenges I've given to, our, to my own church um, in Southwater. But it's, if we asked each other, what does, the church, what does the church as Jesus intended look like? Um, and some of the things we've been exploring is how every single person... When we gather together, they come with a gift. They have a gift themselves. They bring the gift that God is within them, and, and God has gifted us each with different gifts. And how people are commanded to love, to not judge one another, to not, is a big one, to take offense. That's a big one for churches. We are commanded to pray at all times. We're commanded to kill lust, to overflow with praise and adoration. We're commanded to meet in each other's homes. And I think when we see the church exploding in the beginning of Acts, when Jesus has already ascended, the Spirit comes down. What do people do? Is they, they look at the model Jesus set with his followers, and they, they like copy it, and they spread and they grow by their thousands. But what do they do? They, they just start selling their property. They meet in each other's homes. There is this daily community of Christians that are meeting with one another. And we have to be honest with ourselves as Christians to say, does modern day Christianity in the West look anything like that? Does it really look anything like that? And, you know, when you travel around and you see churches, and this is a great example of beautiful kind of looking building, you think, is this what the first disciples had in mind it would eventually look like? Would it look like people gather for an hour once a week? Would they say it was about wearing a cross around your neck? Would they say it was about having great music? Great speakers, buildings, would they say that was the crux of Christianity? Um, and I'm sure this never happens in Bubish, but we have this issue in, in Southwater, right? Is um, It can be embarrassing what church has become. 
It's embarrassing because I'm a pastor and you sort of want to tell non-Christians or those outside of the church what Christianity is like. And, but, but people really come right. We've, dis- we've discovered this. People tend to come to church if they feel motivated to come to church, which is embarrassing because every other faith doesn't work on that level. It works on you go because you believe. But for Christians, it's like, oh, they wake up on a Sunday morning and think, oh, I feel inspired to go to church today. I'm going to go. I feel motivated or I'm involved, so I'll go. And, oh, the talk might interest me, so I think I'm going to go. And then they come, and then people say, I'm sure it never happens in Bubish, but we get this in Southwater. They say, I'm not happy with the building. I'm not happy with how the chairs are laid out. I'm not happy with the style of music. I'm not happy with how loud the music is. I'm not happy with the style of preaching. And and people start becoming incredibly critical of one another. And I'll be the first to say, it is totally embarrassing I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor and I'm looking at this saying, is this what it's become? Is this what we're left with? People highly opinionated, working out there in the mood to come to a gathering. I know this doesn't happen in Bubish. It only happens in Southwater where we live. And when you look at the, look at the warnings of Jesus, if you were to go through the last few verses before this passage, you would notice how Jesus is really not that kind in many ways. He's not as nice as I am. And I think that's one of the challenges for me is realizing, you know, people have this idea that Jesus is incredibly kind, gentle, meek. He's just nice to people. But actually, he's really not like that. He's dangerous, if, you know, if he was going to come into a place like this and preach a message, you, wonder, you wouldn't know what he would say. And you don't know how he would be like, he'd be like thrusting over tables and saying woe to this place or whether he would be encouraging and gentle. You don't know. He's unpredictable. He's the sort of person you wouldn't know which way this thing would go. Um, and so we, we covered for 17 weeks last year um, the Sermon on the Mount, which is what this passage is at the end of. And you might be asking yourself, what did Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount? So I'm, I'm going to highlight just a few of those things. This is what he covers. I realize you can't read that from the back very easily. But it says, Jesus covers murder and adultery starts in the heart. He covers the sacredness, the preciousness of marriage. He says, don't make promises. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. He talks about going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, give someone your coat, which I'll leave Kevin to explain another time what that might mean. He talks about loving your enemies. He talks about giving, fasting, and praying, and doing all these things in secret, not for show, so that people can say, wow, you're so religious. He, does, he says, do it so that in order that your Father in heaven, who is unseen, can see it. He teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, don't store up earthly treasures. He says, do not worry. And he says, do not judge. And you see all of those you know, in a, reading a church for a while, you realize how offensive these things are. When you hear, when you tell people that might consider themselves wealthy, don't store up treasures, it sounds like, is that an optional thing? 
Is it a thing that I can choose to have some things, that as long as God knows my heart, it's okay to have them? But Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't just say, you can store them up if your heart is good. He just tells you, don't do it. In fact, about worry, we tend, we, we're quite gentle with people, right? Especially a lot of people have fear and anxiety in churches. And we tend to think, we'll just tell them, it would be better if you didn't worry. And Jesus says, no. He says, I'm telling you, I'm commanding you, do not worry. Same with judging. We're, we're quite gentle with each other. We think, well, I do a bit of it, you do a bit of it. Let's just do it nicely to one another. And Jesus says, no, do not judge, lest ye will be judged. The language is quite different, isn't it? And then we alight on this passage that we've just read. And we might ask the question, what happens when the storm comes? Looking around the room, I don't know most of your stories, but how many of you would say, I have been through some storms? Right. Everyone, apart from Kev, who's like, no, I have no idea what that is about. It will come, and it will reveal what is really there in your life. It will really reveal it. And people tend to respond, do we go off from God, saying, where was God in my storm, thinking it's very unusual, I'm going through a difficult time. Surely God's supposed to get me out of this mess. He's to, surely he's supposed to sort of uh, rescue me and get me out of the situation. And how often people, they go through a difficult time, they stop praying. I used to be a, a, basically a prison chaplain, and people wouldn't come to chapel or to church sometimes. They would say, I am not going to even pray to God until he gets me out of here. Like they could bargain with God, as if you could say, no, I refuse to do it. God is, never wants me here, so and when he gets me out of here, then I'll go back to church. But for some people, when they go through difficult times, it pushes them further into God. They react and they think, goodness, I need to lean on God. I need to press into him. I need to pray and can seek his face about this situation. And you see, there are, there are two sorts of hearers that Jesus is reflecting on in this passage. The first kind is someone who's heard loads of sermons. They might even read their Bible every day. They've gone into the habit of praying. But something has not shifted in their thinking. It is empty. It is, it's like they hear the word of God preached and spoken. They hear all these lists. Love your enemies. Like, yeah, wonderful things to do. But they don't do the thing they're commanded to do. And I would argue that is the point Jesus is making. He's talking about storms. He's talking about life. He's saying, what have you built And he's saying, because if a life is not built on doing the commands of Jesus, that house, your life, is built on sand. That's a little picture I knocked up before I came this morning. Um, Some of you may or may not know, um, we had a house fire in December last year. Where basically the whole house, whole downstairs was blackened out. All of the upstairs was smoke damaged. Everything was written off inside. Every piece of clothing, every picture, everything, every everything was. And what the building regs guys insisted on that the builders didn't do about six months before we had the fire. Maybe it was four or five months. They insisted that we have some plasterboard put around 
the steel works that went on the extension of the house. The builders hadn't done it and thought they didn't need to do it. Building regs say that needs to have a very particular kind, very thick pink plasterboard around this ceiling part that wasn't covered and around a steel post. So they kind of did it in the next few weeks. They kind of did it. And they put in some extra smoke alarms because the building rig said they need to be put in as well. The irony about that work that they did is that you know, it took them about a day to do this extra work is that that work saved the house. The fire happened in the room that they had not put that fireproof plasterboard on. Had that fire happened without it, this whole structure of those steel beams would have collapsed under the intense heat. That heat was so powerful that when they opened the door to the room, that the smoke came out and it melted all of the walls in the next door room. So it shows you how hot that room where the fire was. It melted every piece of metal, all the plasterboard, all of the wood in the next door room, let alone in the room it happened. But when they looked and they got out the fire, the plasterboard was still intact. It was burnt on the outside, but it was still intact. So all of the metalwork was saved. And that means the whole house was saved. Amen. Thank you. And so here we're talking about the kind of life that can withstand a storm. Let me ask you the question, what have you genuinely built your life upon? What is the basis of your life? What do you really believe? Because the time will come when a storm comes and you'll find out what do you actually believe when, when we're outside of the house and the fire brigade have gone and they basically, we see the mess that's left and we realize we have nothing. The next morning I ring the insurance company and they say, you're not insured because you didn't tell us you'd done the extension. And I said, well, building regs hadn't signed it off yet and um, the amount we're short of is plenty. So I didn't realize we had to. He said, you didn't read our terms and conditions, you're not insured. And at the moment, I put the phone down thinking, we literally have, I mean, we've never saved in our lives. I have no savings. I'm not insured. Everything is gone. And I'm thinking, this is interesting. <laughs> and genuinely, and I, don't, I, I say this carefully because I don't, don't think I'm more than I am, right? I was probably worried about three out of ten. I was a bit of worried, but I wasn't very worried. Because I thought, I know God. I know him enough to know he, it's going to be all right. He's going to look after us. He's got us. And I was already thinking, right, I'll have to get some friends around. And we'll have to, I guess, start taking things out and get a dumpster. And I was already planning this, thinking, okay, we'll be all right. I don't, I don't know what we'll have to do. So we walked around the house a few days later. And by this time, insurance have decided they will. They've changed their minds. They're going to insure us. Yay. The total cost of the bill to insurance, we don't know the exact figure, but it's it might be upwards of 200000 That's what it costs insurance. Me with no savings is still thinking we would, might have been able to work this out ourselves. You realize we're, we're quite poles apart. But it really, and help, let me help you see this situation. The response to the storm we went through wasn't about, look what God is going to do. He's going to give us a new house and we're going to get this money. It was... Whether he does or whether he doesn't, it's going to be okay. 
And we're still thinking in terms of outcomes, still thinking, what's the conclusion though? Tell me the great end of the story. And it's like, even if we were still there saying, listen, we, got, we haven't got a house, I would still be able to say, God is still with us. He loves us. He's for us. He's not against us. And it's going to be okay in him. It really is. I really think that. God is still with us. And you, you see, when do you need a house? You need a house. When does this building, when did it need windows? Why couldn't have we just forget the windows? We'll just have the breeze coming through because it's a nice day. Well, we wouldn't be saying that if it was raining and windy, would we? We'd be saying, where are the windows? And people tend to build houses on the sand because they're thinking, this is a lovely beach. You go down the beach this week. I was at the beach last night. We, this guy has a beach house that um, it was, it was a beach hut, I should say. And we're, it's, like, it's beautiful. It's stunning. It's, it's, it's amazing. And people must go to beaches like this next guy. And they thought, they go to the beach. You can imagine the scenario. They think, it's a beautiful view here. I had never noticed. I think we should put a house right here, right near the edge of this cliff. And everyone says, that's an excellent idea. You'll have a great view. Everyone's going to be jealous of that view. And uh, they build this house and they think, this is lovely. This is just going to be great. From now until the end of time, we'll have a house with a beautiful view. And then what happens is some storms come along, erodes the foundations, and suddenly you can't even live in the house. You can kind of see the parallel with Jesus' words. Someone builds a house on horrifically bad foundations. And the thing with foundations is you can't see them from the outside. And you see, I'm looking at your lovely faces, and I don't know what foundations you have in your life. I can't simply tell by looking. You could be smiling, you could be in a church meeting, but I'm still looking at the externals. I can't see. I can't see what's really there. And what brings it out is storms. They reveal if this life that you've built is able to withstand it. Does this make sense so far? And in some ways, the ones to be pitied most are the confused Christians. The ones that they have one foot in the world and they got one foot in the church and in God. And they're still thinking like, I can have all the world offers and do all the things that the world does. And all the things that my flesh wants to do. But I can also trust in God. And a lot of Christians, I wouldn't say most, maybe most, most live with like a foot in each. They kind of think it's okay to do both. I can can coexist with God and in the world. Do my own thing and also pray. And they come to church. And again, I'm sure this never happens in, in Bubish. But often when I preach a message, someone will come at the end and they'll say, that was really discouraging. And I'd say, help me understand which part of it. And they would say, the challenge you brought us. And I'd say, what did you want me to say? And they'd say, I want you just to encourage me. Why don't you just encourage us? Um, and I'll look at them, and I have said this. This doesn't happen often, but I'll say, tell me about your life. What's going on? And, and knowing full well, there are some things that are a little bit shady, right? And they'll say, yeah, I feel like you picked on me with my situation. I won't know anything about it sometimes. And you're thinking, people kind of think church should be this place where they can just be told everything's going to be all right. I mean, we can't, I, I kind of want that. I want to go to church. We just be told everything's going to be all right. 
Everything's going to be all right. But you see, what Jesus does is he says, wait a minute, everything's not going to be all right if you're building on the wrong foundation. If the foundation of your life is sand, what will happen is the storm will come and you'll be off. Leading a church, we, we're almost up to the six-year mark, so we're quite a, a few years behind you guys, um, is how many Christians have been derailed because of their storms. I know I feel Kev with the same sense of sadness when you see Christians come, they get involved with church, they're raising their hands, they're coming to prayer meetings, a storm will come and will knock them right off. And you think, how did that happen? How can they so easily get knocked off? How is it that for some people they, they meet someone of the opposite sex and that's enough, they're off? They never come back to church because they met a girlfriend or boyfriend and they're like, well, I'd much rather that life than the Christian life. Sometimes we've spoken about hell or heaven, but particularly when you talk about hell and you start saying, Jesus says the way is narrow. And people are saying, are you telling me that people who don't know Jesus may be going to hell? Yeah. And they're, they're off. That's too much. How dare we say that type of language in church? And you realize for so many Christians... The soil is very poor quality. There is no foundations. And, and you start going through some of these loving your enemies. And people are like, what are you saying I need to do? And you say, listen, if you've got enemies in your life, you need to forgive them. You need to let those matters drop that we hold so dearly. And people say, you don't know what I've been through. It's too much. There's no way I could do that. And you realize for so many, it's a stumbling block of offense that they cannot get over. It holds them back and you'll notice they drift off because there's no foundations there. I'm just going to end with this because I said I'll try to keep it to half an hour as best I can. I learned something years ago um, when I'd listen to preachers. There would be some preachers you would listen to and you would say, wow. They are so dynamic. They are such good communicators. They say things you'd never even thought of. And you're thinking, wow, why does everyone need to listen to this person? They're so skilled, so talented. Whatever they say is just like, wow, they're so cool. They're so, they're, so, they're so skilled. You can find these guys on YouTube. They're kind of everywhere, these incredibly gifted speakers. And there would be other guys I would listen to, and I'd be left thinking at the end, think, wow, I need to do something. I need to repent. I need to change. This person's inspired me to change something about my life. Sometimes I would listen to a message and I'd be like, wow, God is so good. And I hope you can understand the sort of two different responses we might have to people. And the first response is, wow, look at them aren't they amazing? We might not word it that way, but we've really come away thinking, wow, this guy's so gifted. And the other person we'd be looking at saying, I can't even remember who it was, but I need to change what I'm doing. I need to change the course of my life. I, I isn't, the reflection is on God suddenly. And the two differences, I think, are, are massive because for the first person, the, the life is still being built if they're not careful on sand. It's still... Look at the glory of a person. The second is, look at the glory of God. Let me 
respond to what God is doing. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get people to see with this passage. Right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, this is what it comes down to. A wise builder versus a foolish builder. It isn't enough to say to Jesus, what an amazing Jesus he is. Look at the signs, the wonders, the miracles that he does. Look at his incredible teachings. He was like no one else. The the next two verses say how amazed the crowds were at Jesus' teaching. Because he had authority and not like the teachers they were used to. When Jesus dies, gets buried, is resurrected, ascends up to heaven... Does anyone know how many people were following Jesus other than Kevin P? Anyone know how many people were following Jesus? In other words, how many were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come? Because you must be thinking, right, if Jesus came, he'd be getting these huge crowds which he was getting. He must have left thousands and thousands of followers. I mean, this is Jesus, the Messiah, right? He's raising people from the dead. He turns water into wine. He heals. He must be this amazing preacher. How many people believed that and were waiting for the promise of the Spirit? Anyone know the answer? 120, thank you. 120, what's that? What's that? That's nothing, right? In, 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 a, in a time where there were many tens of thousands living in Jerusalem, there were only 120 still were holding on to it. Because the rest had not yet had their foundations of like trusting in Jesus, doing his commands, and had a life built that could withstand the crucifixion of the Messiah. And it's interesting, when the Holy Spirit comes in power, immediately 3,000 are added to that number. Should we pray? Wow, God, you are great. And I thank you, Lord, for your words to us, because we would not have thought these words ourselves. We would have maybe come to another conclusion, but the conclusion I'm drawing from this passage is how what matters for every single person in this room is when they face their next storm, they will have a house that they have built with you that can withstand it. And people might be left slightly confused, thinking, "Well, well, how do I do that? How do I build this life? On the teachings of Jesus. And I think the first thing would be to know what he taught. What did he teach? Even in that sermon, what did he teach? And then it's not enough to do it, to memorize it, to be able to recite it. What matters is doing it. There may be something we touched on earlier, where you looked at that list of the things that he taught, and you thought, that sticks out to me like something I need to work on. And Jesus is beckoning you in saying, I am with you on this mission. I am with you to the end of this age. My Holy Spirit lives inside of you, where you have all the power to live a godly life. What is critical in that equation is how we need to respond to what God is doing. We need to respond to what God is teaching us to do. It is not simply good enough to hear it. It is critical to do it. Lord, I want to pray, Lord, for those people who right now feel like they're in a storm. Maybe they feel battered. They feel there's chaos and confusion around them. I pray their response to that situation would be to dig deeper into you. They would go home from here. They would 
get on their knees and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. I cannot do this on my own. Thank you that you are with me. Thank you that you live inside of me. And Lord, as I see, what does a church look like in 2019 that reflects somewhat of that early church? And I do pray, not knowing what is going on behind the scenes here, I pray that this church would continue to grow as a community. It would grow as a place where people can be honest with one another, they can pray for one another, that it wouldn't simply be finding out through curiosity, facts about people's lives. It would be somewhere where people one-on-one or one-in-twos or whatever it was would be praying, leaning on one another. They'd be saying, I'm going through a difficult time. Would you stand with me in this? Others would be saying, I want to help disciple someone. I want to mentor someone. I want to help someone. There would be outward thinking as well. Looking out to those in this estate where we are right now and saying, my friends don't know Christ. And it is critical that they do. That, Lord, you would give us a heart for the things that break your hearts in Bubush. That we would look around us and see this. There is so much of the devil in this place. Let us pray. Let us seek. Let us talk to people. Let us engage with people that don't yet know you. That they would find you. That they would encounter you. That they would know you. And we know how life transformed that is because Jesus changes everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.